You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 67, Resistance is Pointless. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, last episode, we began our discussion of Napoleon's legal reforms. Bonaparte began putting his mark on France almost as soon as he took power in 1799, but this process kicked into high gear in 1802, after the Treaty of Amiens ended the war with Britain. France was finally at peace, and Napoleon could devote his full energies and the resources of his government to an ambitious domestic agenda. This project was fundamentally about good government, creating stability, improving the administration of the country, and creating durable, effective national institutions. But also about centralizing power in Napoleon's hands. Bonaparte would argue that you couldn't have the former without the latter, but obviously his detractors disagreed. Almost as soon as he took power, Napoleon's opponents were already calling him a dictator and a tyrant. Not entirely unfairly, given his means of assent. Any semblance of revolutionary democracy had been dead for quite some time. But in 1802, France took another big step away from republicanism by declaring Napoleon Bonaparte first consul for life. By his own admission, Napoleon was now something resembling a monarch. He had finally surpassed the deeds of his childhood idol, Pasquale Paoli, the enlightened dictator of Corsica, who his father, Carlo Bonaparte, had served under before Napoleon's birth. Just like Paoli, Napoleon was ruling by decree, founding new institutions, and remaking the country in his own image. But Paoli was operating on a small, out-of-the-way island, with maybe a few hundred thousand residents. Napoleon's canvas would be the greatest world power, home to over 30 million people. Think back to those early episodes, when we covered Bonaparte's tortured relationship with Paoli during the tumultuous years after the revolution. Paoli had never warmed to the Bonaparte brothers, despite their persistent efforts to win him over. Ultimately, Paoli turned against France and declared the Bonapartes outlaws. Now, Bonaparte had surpassed this idol-turned nemesis. 
It must have been a strange, bittersweet feeling. But, unfortunately for us, he never recorded his thoughts on the subject. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon wasn't just acting like a king, he was beginning to look like one as well. Elaborate court etiquette was making a comeback, as were the luxurious trappings of monarchy. Napoleon was working to rebuild the mystique of absolute power which had once surrounded the King of France, but updated for the new age he was working to bring into being, blending patriotic republican symbolism with the opulence and gravitas of the old regime. Not long after taking power, Napoleon began making inquiries about the country's former crown jewels, the most famous and tangible symbols of the wealth and legitimacy of the Bourbon dynasty. Much like their owners, the French crown jewels had not fared well during the Revolution. The famous Crown of Charlemagne, which had been the centerpiece of French coronation ceremonies since the 13th century, had been melted down and sold to fund the Republic's war effort during the desperate days of the 1790s. Beyond the monetary rewards, I doubt the Republicans could resist the symbolism of destroying these symbols of royal authority to finance a crusade against the old order. During the chaos of the revolution, thieves were able to steal several of the former crown jewels, although most were eventually recovered. However, of the eleven royal crowns in the king's treasury, only one survived intact. But the crown jewels were more than just crowns. It was a huge collection that included not only the ceremonial regalia of the royal family, but jewelry, objets d'art, and loose precious stones and diamonds, totaling thousands of items. Some were auctioned off by the revolutionary government. Others were sent to museums and put on display as art, historical artifacts, or geological marvels. The remainder were in storage, used by successive revolutionary governments as collateral to secure foreign loans for the war effort. Once, the crown jewels had been a potent symbol of the divine right of kings, part of the mystical bridge that connected the kings and queens of France to God Almighty and to their illustrious ancestors stretching back through the Middle Ages to Charlemagne. Under the bureaucrats of the Revolution, they were nothing more than financial instruments, just another piece of property on a ledger to be leveraged by accountants and bankers. The crown jewels were seized by the state, stripped of any metaphysical significance, and put to work towards the common good, the revolution in microcosm. But now that Napoleon was in power, he had other, grander uses in mind for the crown jewels. In 1801, the public began to notice a new addition to Napoleon's wardrobe. A precious stone had been inlaid into the hilt of the ceremonial sword which he carried on special occasions. As I've mentioned before, Napoleon's personal appearance became much more fashionable and opulent almost as soon as he took office. This new stone in his sword was just one of many upgrades to his image. But this wasn't just any stone. It was the famous Regent Diamond, one of the most prized possessions of the former royal family, and one of the most valuable objects on the planet. 
Even today, it remains one of the largest and most expensive diamonds ever discovered, valued at somewhere around $60 million. According to some, the Regent Diamond is cursed, and it does indeed have a troubled history. People sometimes ask me why Napoleon was ultimately defeated, despite his tremendous talents and all the strengths of the Napoleonic army and state. Well, if you're inclined to supernatural explanations, you might blame the curse of the Regent Diamond. Although Napoleon himself probably would have laughed at such superstition. As you can imagine, the appearance of this fantastically gaudy diamond raised a lot of eyebrows. France was still a republic, if only on paper. It's not very republican to have your dictator for life strutting around his palace with a 140-carat stone on his hip. For Bonaparte's republican critics, this seemed to confirm all their suspicions. Even many who accepted Napoleon's authoritarianism didn't like to see him flaunt his power so blatantly. The public reaction was so negative that the official government newspaper published an op-ed defending Napoleon's use of the diamond, claiming that it merely exalted the office of First Consul, not Napoleon himself, as a private individual. As if those two things could still be separated. In Napoleon's defense, I do think it's significant that he displayed the diamond on his sword, rather than wearing it more prominently on his clothing, as the kings of France had done. It was a reminder that, although he was now on par with the monarchs of Europe, he had come to power by a very different route, through the sword rather than by birth. It seemed to say that, if Napoleon was a dictator, he was at least a very different type of dictator. With time, the outrage over the Regent Diamond blew itself out. After all, what could anyone do? Once again, I'm reminded of that quotation from a French senator, which we used last episode. Quote, Any resistance from now on would be pointless. End quote. Napoleon kept his diamond, and his critics kept their objections to themselves. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Before we go too far down this diamond digression, I'd like to return to the topic we introduced last episode, Napoleon's new code of civil law. Hopefully, I was able to drive home the significance of this achievement. The Napoleonic Code is part of the very foundation of modernity, and has probably shaped the lives of everyone listening to this recording. Napoleon himself believed the Civil Code was his most important legacy, and I agree. We've already gone into very deep detail explaining the significance of the Code, 
This episode, I'd like to focus on the nuts and bolts, how the document was written, and what its immediate practical impact was. Napoleonic history is full of grand spectacles, solemn public ceremonies in ornate churches and palaces, packed with dignitaries in their finest court outfits, battles with hundreds of thousands of men clad in colorful, sometimes even gaudy uniforms, fighting in perfect formation, carrying sparkling standards and gleaming steel bayonets, creating huge swaths of color that were visible even through the smoke of thousands of deafening cannon and crackling muskets, daring cavalry charges in which men decked out in fur and gold fought hand-to-hand with lances and glimmering sabers. This was an era of daring fashions off the battlefield as well, especially for women. And they had to be, because this was also a golden age of parties, operas, and theater, as well as for battle. The competition to look the best and attract the most attention was quite fierce. This is a dazzling era of history, which remains part of its attraction today. Which is why I find it very ironic that one of the most important legacies of this time of great spectacles is so totally lacking in beauty or drama. The Napoleonic Code was hammered out by a committee of lawyers in a government office. Other than the clothes and the setting, it probably wasn't fundamentally very different from when your local government holds a meeting about building a new park or hiking bus fares. It was an utterly unremarkable and boring crucible that forged one of the foundational texts of the modern world. The committee generally met around lunchtime. Sometimes their sessions only lasted a few hours. Sometimes they stretched late into the night. There were several people who attended all or most of the sessions, but it was a rotating cast, largely because Napoleon controlled the invites, and he liked to stack the meetings with people he knew agreed with him on the topic of the day. The committee met 107 times. First Consul Bonaparte chaired 55 of these sessions, a slim majority. That may not sound like much, but it's hard to find many non-military endeavors which commanded more of Napoleon's time or energy. Remember, he was a notorious micromanager, and was now running the entire French government himself, right down to the appointments of local officials out in the provinces. This is actually a remarkably high level of involvement for someone with so many demands on his time. The other 52 sessions were all chaired by Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. We met Cambacérès way back in episode 54. He was the second consul of France, on paper, second only to Napoleon in the French political hierarchy. In practice, he was an unambitious technocrat with little public profile, who was totally beholden to Napoleon. Cambacérès was elected as an alternate to the Estates General in 1789, the first of many revolutionary legislatures, and had been involved in politics ever since. Like many politicians who managed to avoid the guillotine all the way through the various twists and turns of the revolution, Cambacérès survived by keeping his head down, operating as a backroom dealmaker rather than cultivating a public profile and focusing on the dry details of his personal area of expertise, the law. 
As the revolutionaries sought to excise the legacy of feudalism from French law and replace it with egalitarian Enlightenment principles, Cambacérès was often the man they turned to. Before the coup of 18 Brumaire brought Napoleon to power and gave Cambacérès an unexpected promotion, he had already written large swaths of the French criminal code and government regulations. During the 1790s, Cambacérès had submitted no fewer than three proposals to the revolutionary government recommending a complete overhaul of the civil code. These proposals produced some interest, but no concrete results. No government until the consulate had the wherewithal to undertake this massive task. So, in a sense, we can look at the Napoleonic Code as the culmination of nearly a decade of work by Cambacérès and men like him, who had been working to reform French law since the earliest days of the Revolution. Indeed, as we discussed last episode, there had been strong reformist currents in French legal thought since long before the Revolution. However, it was only under Napoleon that these experts were brought together and given free reign to pursue their project to its logical conclusion, the total replacement of France's patchwork legal system with a comprehensive new legal regime. Obviously, these men made very important contributions, but we shouldn't underestimate the role that Napoleon himself played in these proceedings. He did much more than simply play ringmaster to the legal minds on the committee. We know from notes taken during these meetings that Bonaparte played a very active role in the sessions he chaired, even sometimes overruling the experts when he disagreed with their approach. But this was a rare occurrence. Generally speaking, the meetings of the committee were quite harmonious. There seems to have already been a great deal of consensus among its members perhaps because the work of the committee reflected the conventional wisdom of the French legal community, perhaps because so many of these men knew each other and came into the project with pre-existing working relationships, or perhaps it's simply because Napoleon did a good job filtering out anyone who disagreed with his point of view. Whatever the case, their work proceeded smoothly and steadily, but not quickly the work of the committee dragged on over the course of years. The Napoleonic Code wasn't finally finished until early 1804. That's a very long time compared to the average government initiative, but given the scope and scale of the project, it's understandable that they took their time. The Code was introduced to the legislature, but rather than offer up their typical rubber stamp, the Tribunate, one of the two lower houses, rejected the new civil code. But after a few minor tweaks and some serious arm-twisting behind the scenes, an updated version finally became law on the 21st of March, 1804. This was not the first time the Tribunate defied Napoleon. Immediately after its creation in the wake of the Brumaire coup, it became a center of dissent. Obviously, there were no committed royalists or left-wing Jacobins allowed anywhere near the Tribunate. Its members were all ideological fellow travelers with the Brumaire coup. However, while the Tribunes may have agreed with Napoleon's general worldview, many of them objected strenuously to his methods. As early as January 5, 1800, only a few months after the coup, 
Tribune Benjamin Constant, a liberal writer and thinker, made a blistering speech, warning that the legislature was becoming too deferential to Bonaparte. Quote, Without legislative independence, there can be neither harmony nor constitution, only servitude and silence. Silence that all of Europe will hear. End quote. The following year, the Tribune's elected writer and historian Pierre Donu, president of the Tribunate, equivalent to Speaker of the House in the American system. Donu was one of Napoleon's most outspoken critics. Bonaparte did not take criticism well. He understood this as a declaration of war, and soon after purged twenty of the loudest dissenters from the body, including Donu and Constant. However, this was not the end of Donu's public career. Napoleon promptly found him another job, as head of the National Archives. As we've seen before, Napoleon did have a vindictive streak on some occasions, but he could also be surprisingly charitable to former rivals, once they were safely sidelined. Donu repaid Napoleon's kindness by staying loyal right to the bitter end in 1815. Napoleon's right-wing critics often charged that he was soft on the left, that conservative opponents of the regime went to prison or the guillotine, while left-wing critics often got away with a slap on the wrist. Looking at the way the first consul treated Donu, maybe they had a point. Anyway, to make a long story short, the Tribunate was already on thin ice when they rejected the first draft of the Civil Code. Many historians argue this act of defiance sealed its fate. Napoleon redoubled his efforts to marginalize the Tribunate, and in 1807, it was finally abolished for good. That was about how things went for the legal opposition under the consulate. For all their principles and soaring rhetoric, they weren't able to do anything more than occasionally annoy Napoleon. Resistance really had become pointless. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So, now that we've discussed the significance of the code and its passage from the committee room to law, I'd like to take a look at its immediate political impact. The code touched the life of everyone in France. For some, it helped instill a deeply held loyalty to Napoleon, which would endure all the way to the end, and even beyond. For others, the Napoleonic code was a bitter disappointment which only confirmed their alienation from the new regime. As is so often the case, many of the most contentious parts of the Code had to do with what we today would call social issues, in particular the rights of women and regulations on marriage and the family. I think when we look at social issues in this era, there's a temptation to shrug our shoulders and say, well, those were the times, and that's what people back then believed. 
but these were hot-button issues at the dawn of the 19th century, just as they are today. People had a wide range of views on these issues, just as they do today. The terrain of debate was different, but it was no less fierce. Any time of revolution and upheaval represents an opportunity for social change. As we've seen in many other spheres of life, the destruction of the old order meant the future was suddenly up for grabs, and different groups rushed in to shape that future. In this respect, reform-minded women were no different from anyone else, and there was some reason to believe they might succeed in changing gender roles. Female revolutionaries had struggled alongside their male comrades in the fight against the old order. One of the most pivotal events of the revolution, the March on Versailles in October 1789, was planned by, led by, and composed primarily of women. In November 1789, a group of women submitted a petition to the National Assembly, calling for sweeping reforms. Quote, It is altogether astonishing that, having gone so far along the path of reforms, and having cut down a very large part of the forest of prejudices, you would leave standing the oldest and most general of all abuses, the one which excludes the most beautiful and lovable half of the inhabitants of this vast kingdom, from positions, dignities, honors, and especially from the right to sit amongst you. End quote. Point one of their suggested legislation reads, quote, all the privileges of the male sex are entirely and irrevocably abolished throughout France. End quote. That very modern-sounding phrase, male privilege, was intended to draw a direct parallel with the former privileges of the nobility, which had been abolished only a few months earlier. Among other things, they also called for the admittance of women into politics, the law, the civil service, even the military and the right to wear long pants. It was an incredibly bold proposal. French women would not win the right to vote until 1944, and were not permitted to serve in the military on equal footing with men until 1972. The petition was not taken under any serious consideration, despite the sacrifices made by French women on the revolutionary barricades. This was also an era of female social and intellectual empowerment. In upper- and middle-class households, women ran the social calendar, which gave them control over the famous Parisian salons, the beating heart of French cultural and intellectual life. In this era of enlightenment, any person of substance was expected to participate in salon culture. An invitation to the right salon could be the key to political, social, and even economic advancement. Even powerful statesmen, high-ranking generals, and wealthy financiers were expected to play this game. Anyone who controlled the invitation list to a well-regarded salon wielded tremendous influence, and those people were almost all women. Not only that, Inside the salons, women participated on more or less equal footing with men. It was possible for women of this era to make names for themselves as intellectuals, writers, and artists. And although they faced an uphill battle, many did. 
One of these was Olympe de Gouge, a novelist and playwright who, like so many of her peers, turned her pen to politics during the Revolution. In 1791, she published one of the most famous political essays to emerge from this period, the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and of the Female Citizen, a deliberate play on the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, published two years earlier and already seen as one of the central ideological pillars of the Revolution. De Gouge's preamble reads, quote, Man, are you capable of being fair? A woman is asking. At least will you allow her that right? Tell me, what gave you the sovereign right to oppress my sex? Your strength? Your talents? Observe the Creator in His wisdom. Examine nature in all its grandeur. And give me, if you dare, a pattern for this tyrannical power. Reconsider animals. Consult the elements. Study plants. Finally, cast an eye over the variations of all living organisms. Yield to the evidence that I have given you. Search, excavate, and discover, if you can, sexual characteristics in the workings of nature. Everywhere you will find them intermingled, everywhere cooperating harmoniously within this immortal masterpiece. Only man has cobbled together a rule to exclude himself from this system. Bizarre, blind, puffed up with science and degenerate, in this century of enlightenment and wisdom, with the crassest ignorance. He wants to command, like a despot, a sex that is blessed with every intellectual faculty. He feigns to rejoice in the revolution and demands its equal rights, to say nothing more. End quote. It was an impassioned plea which struck all the right notes for this era of enlightened debate and soaring rhetoric. The Declaration generated a lot of discussion, but precious little action. The most radical demands of these revolutionary women were dismissed or ignored. But there was some real progress towards women's equality during the 1790s. In particular, divorce laws were liberalized. Under the old regime, divorce was nearly impossible under most circumstances, and in the rare cases it was permitted, the rules favored husbands over wives. As a result, women were often shackled to abusive or neglectful husbands, and even sometimes punished for trying to separate themselves from dangerous situations. The revolution made divorce much easier to obtain, and the process became much less punitive towards women. This fell far short of the demands of more radical activists, but it did grant a degree of security to the women of France, and immediately improved the lives of thousands of people. So, this was the status quo as Napoleon, Cambacérès, and the committee sat down to draft the civil code. Would they enshrine these new rights for women? pick up the torch and expand them even further? Or would they step back from the gains of the 1790s? That latter option was a real possibility, because there were many constituencies in France who were deeply skeptical of all this so-called social progress. Revolutionary divorce laws were in direct contradiction with Catholic teachings, and more than that, they flew in the face of what we today might call traditional values. 
even many people who didn't consider themselves particularly loyal to the Vatican, were uncomfortable with the idea of Paris dictating the way they treated their wives. This group included many people who Napoleon was hoping to add to his political base, the small landowners and middle class of what scholars call la France profonde, literally deep France, a phrase roughly comparable to middle America. It refers to the areas out in the provinces, where people were generally not plugged in to the political and cultural back and forth in Paris and other major cities. Napoleon viewed the petty elites of these types of places as the backbone of France, those peasants who owned their own land and were wealthy enough to hire farmhands, the town lawyer, the town doctor, the local school teacher, small-time merchants, and prosperous shopkeepers, people we might call pillars of the community, the types of people who wielded unofficial power in the vast stretches of the country where the state was often too weak to have much of an impact on daily life, and the ideological and factional struggles in the capital often felt very distant and alienating. Throughout his time in power, Napoleon was obsessed with winning and maintaining the loyalty of this constituency, and many of them were socially conservative. Even those who were skeptical of the Catholic Church often found the new social order offered by the revolutionaries even less appealing. And let's not forget, Napoleon himself shared many of these views. He came from this class of people and his upbringing in all-male military schools and early adulthood in the all-male military had instilled a strong belief in the separation of the sexes. And so, Bonaparte and the committee chose to roll back some of the gains won by French women in the 1790s. Regulations on divorce were tightened, and the man was legally designated as the head of the French household. The window of new possibilities for the women of France, which had opened with the revolution, was slamming shut. Future generations of women's rights activists had to work hard to reopen it. However, the committee could have gone much farther. In fact, Catholic intellectuals and professional royalist agitators denounced the civil code as godless, secular liberalism. Apparently, the swing toward social conservatism hadn't gone nearly far enough for some people. But remember, Napoleon wasn't trying to win over well-heeled Catholic intellectuals or right-wing journalists. He was courting the anonymous middle classes of deep France, and their relationship with Catholic orthodoxy and social conservatism was complicated and ambiguous. Oftentimes, their beliefs were much closer to those of Napoleon than those of the conservative intellectuals who claimed to be their champions. This struggle over women's rights is just one example of the debates set off by the civil code. To take another example, civil libertarians were upset by the vast leeway the code gave to government agents. This was compounded in 1810, when the code got a sequel in the form of a new criminal code, which empowered police and prosecutors, and was very light on protections for ordinary citizens. On the other hand, authoritarian-minded advocates of law and order applauded these measures. 
After over a decade of civil conflict, guerrilla warfare, and rampant banditry, you can probably guess which group was larger. To take another example, workers and small artisans would be disappointed by Napoleon's laws as well. Under the Napoleonic Code, employees were almost totally at the mercy of their bosses. Labor unions were illegal. Wage laborers were required to travel with passbooks to be signed by their employers, effectively blacklisting any worker who dared leave a job without the consent of his boss. Obviously, these measures were not popular among workers, but many employers appreciated being granted such expansive power over their employees, and the assurance that in the event of a labor dispute, the state would be on their side. Napoleon was cobbling together a constituency for himself and his regime. With the law code, he was able to reach people who couldn't be swayed by pamphlets, speeches, and parliamentary maneuvers in the capital, but wielded some small degree of power and influence in the types of small rural communities where most French people lived. If you want to take the cynical view, you could say that Napoleon sold out the ideals of the revolution to buy the loyalty of a fundamentally reactionary segment of society that he abandoned his own beliefs and chose to throw in his lot with the enemies of progress to enhance his own power, a deal with the devil. I wouldn't say that view is entirely wrong, but I think it misses some of the picture. Napoleon was always an idiosyncratic revolutionary, who believed strongly in order and hierarchy, even as he fought to overturn the social order against a king he had once sworn to serve, and the aristocracy to which he had once belonged. The less cynical explanation is that Napoleon understood there was simply no way for the gains of the revolution to persist under a stable government without the consent of this so-called deep France, that the Republicans would lose everything they had fought for over the course of ten years if they weren't willing to give some of it up to win the support of the broad majority of the country which they claimed to represent. Of course, it's worth mentioning, the burden of these compromises was not shared equally. It was borne primarily by people who did not share the characteristics of the people on the committee, all men, all wealthy, and all politically powerful. No one asked the people who lost out in this process if they were willing to surrender some of their personal autonomy in the name of public order and social harmony. However, it's also worth pointing out that Napoleon certainly didn't trade away everything. Far from it. Doctrinaire conservatives were infuriated by the Napoleonic Code, perhaps even more so than the left. There was little role for the Catholic Church in Bonaparte's new legal order. The Criminal Code of 1810 contained no laws against moral crimes, like blasphemy, heresy, or sodomy which were still illegal and punished severely almost everywhere else in the world. The most perceptive conservative thinkers understood just how dangerous the Napoleonic Code was to their cause. From their perspective, the socially conservative aspects of the Code were nothing more than a spoonful of sugar masking the poison of secularism, egalitarianism, and republicanism. Thanks to Bonaparte, 
Many people who were naturally inclined towards conservatism were embracing a revolutionary Republican government. Although, whether or not Bonaparte's government still counted as revolutionary or Republican is open to debate. I think we'll leave things there for now. Next time, we'll continue our discussion of Napoleon's domestic reforms. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.